Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sabah al-khair. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine Remembered with Robert Martin, Nasser Mashni and Yusuf Ahmed al-Rimawi. Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, listeners. Good morning, Nasser. Good morning, Yusuf. Morning, Robert. Morning. Morning, guys. Now, Nasser, what do we have for today's show? Okay, well, we've got an exclusive um, from Yarmouk. Uh, Yusuf was able to get a recording from a Palestinian fleeing the devastation of the current um, Survivor, yeah. Yeah, massacres that are happening in Yarmouk camp. We're going to be talking about Ibrahim Nasrallah, who is a Palestinian novelist who's just won the Booker Prize, um, which is for Arab Novelist of the Year. A second Palestinian journalist died in Gaza. Talk about him and also the um, apartheid legal system that uh, convicted a, an Israeli soldier um, just recently and compare that to Ahad. And we're going to touch on some BDS victories as well. And also, I believe something happened to your YouTube channel, Robert. Uh, my YouTube channel was uh, terminated. Uh, so with, we'll talk with about no that. Notice, so it's okay. something, a bit of censorship. So we're going to talk a little bit about Yamuk, and it's something that I'm relatively new about. It's something that's been going on for, for quite some time. They've been attacked many, many times. So, I mean, Yusuf, if you can give us an overview of sort of what has been happening since the beginning to where we play the recording of this horrific, horrific sounding message that was sent to you. Mm. Well, uh, Yarmouk, uh, to me, uh, has a personal uh, importance, uh, given that my my mother's family all grew up there. In fact, my mum was born a year after Nakba in Syria, and when she was eight, Yarmouk camp was built. So she grew up in Yarmouk and then her other siblings, brothers, sisters, and then their their own kids and families. So in Yarmouk, I had something like 35 to 40 relatives up up until 2012. And then there was about 250,000 people in Yarmouk. Is that correct? Yeah, it was called the capital of Palestinian diaspora because it is the biggest concentration of Palestinian refugees in one geographical location. Had the same streets named. It was like a mini-Palestine. Indeed, uh, when they first built Yarmouk in 1957, Sheikh Amin al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Palestine, gave it its name and named it after Yarmouk River between Jordan and Palestine. And the streets were named after the hometowns and villages and cities of the people of Yarmouk. For example, my mother's family were from Safad. There is Safad Street. 
there are families from Safuria, mm-hmm. Safuria Street, and then Tabaria, and then you name it, Lubia Street. Lubia is a small village to the north of Palestine. The Israelis renamed it and gave it a Hebrew name. They call it today Luvi. So after ethnically cleansing it from its own population, after denying them return for 70 years, Israel erased its memory by building a forest or park from JNF money on top of the ruins of Lubia. Now, Lubia Street in Yarmouk camp was not only the most important commercial hub of the camp, it was one of the most important commercial hubs in Damascus. So, in a way, the people of Yarmouk uh, recreated an imaginary mini-Palestine in Yarmouk and you could see graffiti, political graffitis on the wall, pictures of leaders, Yasser Arafat and other revolutionary leaders. So Yarmouk indeed deserved to be called the capital of the Palestinian diaspora. The first chapter of Yarmouk tragedy was with the beginning of the Syrian uprising, but from March 2011 to December 2012, there was a relative peace, the camp somehow was not caught in the war between the regime and opposition. But nevertheless, the people of Yarmouk could feel that things are getting worse by day. And that continued up until December 2012, when rebels somehow managed to infiltrate inside the camp. So members from the Free Syrian Army and uh, rebels from other opposition uh, organizations took over parts of Yarmouk. Their response was brutal by the government. In fact, it was the first time MiG airplanes were used in the Syrian revolution. MiG is equivalent to F-16 jet fighters, so, so we can imagine. And you're talking about a small refugee camp. So the result was the big flight. Small and packed, absolutely yeah, packed uh, like sardines. Uh, yeah, a, a captive civilian population. So that was the beginning of the second Nakba of the people of Yarmouk, the black chapter of Yarmouk. And then it led to the flight of about maybe 100,000 of the 250,000 mm. over two, three days only, including my auntie Maryam, my cousins, Muhammad, Sa'id, Ra'id. Uh, these people found themselves uh, homeless overnight, and they st- the first went to the neighboring uh, um, 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 suburbs of Damascus, uh, particularly Jarmana uh, suburb, and then... They, um, some of them made it to Lebanon. It was open, the, the Lebanese-Syrian border for some, time. for some time. Less than a year later, the Lebanese government blocked entry of the Palestinian-Syrian travel document holders. Now, the statelessness of ex-Syria Palestinians in Lebanon, Egypt, Turkey and other neighboring countries is much more complicated than the status of Syrian refugees in the same countries because there were other elements invited to the Palestinian issue. The fact that, for example, a Syrian refugee in Lebanon is entitled to UNHCR registration, a Palestinian Syrian in Lebanon is not. And if you don't get UNHCR registration, the world does not see you as genuine refugee. International aid organizations don't see you as genuine refugee. In other words, the ex-Syria Palestinians in neighboring countries missed out on resettlement and on aid. And Nasser, you remember, I'm sure you and I worked on a report three years ago on the treatment of ex-Yarmouk or ex-Syria refugees 
in the Syria neighboring countries. That's right, yeah, we did. And we, we produced a report that we um, sent through to our friends in the Australian Parliament, but and with an endeavour to try and resettle some of those Palestinian refugees into Australia, but unfortunately we had uh, no success. So back to the besieged Yarmouk camp in Syria. The other chapter began when um, when the regime decided to solve the problem of rebels by putting uh, the camp under tightened tightened siege and blocking the entry and exits of the camp. No water, no food, no electricity, and then the hunger began. It led to people dying of dehydration, dying mm. of starvation. starvation. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we even saw footage of people having to eat the grass. Came, mm. uh, they, they came to that point. Um, after that, the population of Yarmouk was reduced to less than 20,000. So that's 10% of the original population, and that's towards the end of 2013. Now, the third chapter was ISIS. ISIS came to the camp. Nobody knows how that happened. And then the regime now can justify more brutality because everybody hates ISIS. So when the regime you know, starts targeting uh, the camp uh, and, and say we are targeting ISIS, there seems to be things can go unnoticed. Now imagine yourself living in Yarmouk during this time. You are occupied by ISIS. You are besieged by the government. You have extremely scarce resources. If you try to escape chances are that you will be killed by ISIS who want to take the population of Yarmouk hostage. And in fact, I lost a cousin who was killed by ISIS sniper while trying to leave the camp. So by end of 2017, the population of the camp was reduced from quarter million to less than 3,000 people. Fast forward to last weekend, we heard uh, Friday night, Saturday morning, that Yarmouk camp is being carpet bombed inch by inch, street by street, by the Syrian regime. The pretext given was to eradicate ISIS from the camp, but the remaining civilians paid the extremely heavy price. So over the last five or six years, the people of Yarmouk were let down by nearly everybody, by the Syrian government, by the opposition figures, moderate or terrorist, all of them, by the neighboring countries, by the international community, by the UNHCR, by UNRWA, and even by us, the Palestinian media or pro-Palestinian media, because we don't seem to be giving them what they deserve of representation and coverage. So as we are speaking now, the people, the remaining civilians of Yarmouk are buried inside their homes. The injured and dead bodies do not find anyone to carry them, and the survivors fled with barely anything with them. So we are witnessing the end of Yarmouk camp. It will be totally demolished, and the Palestinians of Yarmouk will never return to it again. Here is a voice message I received from a Yarmouk survivor. So we'll put it as it is in Arabic and then we will put the translation provided to us by our friend Zena Kilani. الحمد لله احنا بخير والله خيه 
طلعنا تحت الموت تحت الخطر طلعنا غريبة البناية اللي قدامنا تهدمت نزلت على روس الناس وبعد المدفونين تحت الردم يا والله يا خيا كل شيء كل شيء تركنا ورانا يا خيا مالك سامع دمرونا المخيم يا خي شو بدي اسوي؟ صفنا مثل الشحادين يا خي ما في حرام نتغطى شو خي وين عم تبكي؟ عم بحكي لعمر كل شيء وليش تبكي؟ طيب عم ببكي لأنه تركنا كل شيء ورا أنا ما جبنا شيء صلي عندك صلي عندك صلي عندك صلي عندك يا بنتي عمر عمر ماما شاهد وأوعينا وأوعينا غياراتنا ما جبنا شيء أجينا بأوعينا كنا نحضر بالقراب Thank God we're safe, brother. We escaped death. We escaped the danger. The building across from us was demolished. It collapsed on the top of the people who lived inside. Um, they're still in there. They're buried under the rubble. We left everything behind. Just like you're hearing. They destroyed the refugee camp. What can I do? We're going to have to be beggars. We don't have any blankets to cover with. What can we do, brother? I'm telling Omar everything. I'm crying because we left everything behind. It's not just about the stuff. We left all of our papers and documents, our clothes. We didn't bring anything. Listening to Palestine remembered on 855 AM. And um, we've had a second journalist murdered uh, in the Great Return March in Gaza, uh, Ahmed Abu Hussein. So that's now two journalists on top of what is now 40 Palestinians killed, 5,511 that have been wounded. Uh, 1,499 of them were hit by live ammunition. That's, you know, uh, remembering the Israelis that said they know where every single bullet goes. Um, we, should, we should also mention that uh, it's six journalists were actually shot as well, so have been wounded quite badly. So yeah. obviously the Israeli soldiers, or so-called soldiers, have been aiming at the press to try and silence them, plus kids. Plus kids. I mean, a kid lost Do you think leg. this was random? This was, of course, targeted, systematic yeah. uh, targeting of uh, people who can... Uh, I mean, there's that, there's that many videos flying around now of, of proof. There's also, you know, another video that went around that was inside uh, Palestine, not Gaza, but that was uh, where they've actually shot these young Palestinians that were posing no danger to anybody. And then the soldiers are seen actually congratulating each other. And then one of the other soldiers realises that he's being filmed and says, oh, no, you've got to act professional. But w- what has actually come of it is that one of the, the Palestinian was trying to help another Palestinian that uh, was injured and they've actually taken a pot shot. Uh, these are with M16, 
live ammunition, live mm-hmm. rounds. And, and again, it's been caught on world media, but we don't hear about it from anybody. And we should understand, I mean, look, the, the reality is a, a brigadier general was interviewed on Israeli uh, radio and he was asked, this, uh, this brigadier general, Zivka Fogel, and he was asked, the, the interviewer says to him, you know, should we rethink the use of snipers? And he suggests that maybe that we should lower the bar, you know, the bar's too low for using live fire. And Fogel defends the policy saying, at the tactical level, any person who gets close to the fence, anyone who could be a future threat to the border of the State of Israel and its residents should bear the price for the violation. So, so a kid, you know, an unarmed civilian waving a flag, Shoot them all. There was also someone mentioned, and look, I don't have the name, and maybe if we find it, we can put it uh, on the website for us, but there was a man saying that if they are shooting children, they tend to aim at the arms or the lower part of the body. So they actually have a justified um, right to be able to shoot these kids from the government up, mm-hmm. uh, from the government down, and you know, simply to say that when it's children, we try and aim at their arms and so forth. Yeah. So still aiming. Now, this, is, this, is the, this is the general. You know, He said his punishment death, as far as I'm concerned, then yes. If you can only shoot him to stop him in the arm or the leg, great. Yeah. But if it's more than that, then yes, you want to check with those whose blood is thicker, ours or theirs. And then he describes the process under which they target children. I know how these orders are given. I know how a sniper does the shooting. I know how many authorizations he needs before he receives the authorization to open. It's not the whim of one or another sniper who identifies the small body of a child now and decides he'll shoot. Someone marks the target for him very well and tells him exactly why one has to, when he has to shoot and what the threat is from that individual. And sometimes when you shoot at a small body, you intend to hit his arm or shoulder, it goes even higher. You know, uh, apologising accidentally. Uh, uh, accidentally. I mean, it's just absolutely uh So clear that they don't see Palestinians as humans, the way they're talking like this. It's like a hunting game. Uh, well, and the fact that that young 14-year-old, I think, that lost his leg... Yeah, um, was shot off, yeah. Shot ...and was shot off. So, yeah. uh, so that was Mohammed Ayyub. But um, so just this past week... Um, uh, an officer in the uh, Israeli army, Ben Derry, was given nine months in jail for negligent homicide. And uh, just we should note that he expressed no regret and took no responsibility for his actions. He was lying in the sniper position with an M16, uh, and the rifle is fitted to shoot rubber bullets. And remembering that these rubber bullets aren't just pieces of rubber, they are steel bullets that are, have got a thin coating, uh, thin coating of rubber around them. They still kill kids, take out eyes, etc., that he believes that he act well. He was charged that he negligently changed uh, cartridges. You know, took the uh, different round and put instead of a rubber bullet, put a live. M- so uh, it was an accident. It was an accident. Live bullet, and he shot on Nakba Day, two thousand and fourteen. So now four years ago, sixteen-year-old Nadim Nawara um, in the chest and killed him instantly. Now Ben Derry got nine months in jail. Ahad Tamimi got eight months in jail for a slap. And, you know, I, I found a story that I, I um, had uh, look put away for a while. And somebody wrote it to me and she said to me, she goes, if you want to know what it's like to be a Palestinian inside, you know, Palestine, Israel. And here's a story from 30 years ago from the first Intifada. And it was in the early months and Israel had already killed 120 people. An Israeli teenager was killed in the Palestinian town of Beta while on a hike with other armed settlers. Two Palestinians were also killed that day. The young woman's death was instantly blamed on the Palestinians, and in order to send a message, the Israeli army demolished 14 Palestinian homes, killed another teen, and deported six Palestinians to Lebanon. Uh, 
Israeli politicians called Beta to be wiped off the mat and the hands of those living there to be cut off. After a few days, it became apparent that the Israeli teen had not been killed by Palestinians, but rather had been shot by one of the armed settlers, a man named Roman Aldubi. Romam, as it turns out, had earlier killed the unarmed brother of a Palestinian woman, who upon seeing Roman threw a stone at him. She, pregnant at the time, was sentenced to prison, while Roman, a man who'd killed at least two people, caused three others to be killed, caused the demolition of 14 homes and the deportation of six to Lebanon, and the uprooting of scores of olive and almond trees, were set free because they deemed that he'd suffered enough. This guy serves on one of the Israeli settlement councils. Well, the receiving end of the Israeli bullets are the wrong type of people, according to uh, the Israelis, and the receiving end of slaps are the chosen people, so mm. they get to be punished uh, severely. That, we should also say that uh, Ben Derry, the only reason this guy got to this point where he was getting charged is that Nadim's father, God rest his soul, Nadim's father dedicated his life to get him to jail. They actually found CNN footage. There's actually CNN footage of the sniper changing out the rounds and at the same time uh, as the shots taken of Nadim getting shot and they were able to splice them together and show them in real time, second by second, the the, the execution of poor Nadim. This is the only reason that Ben Derry got charged. And remember, this is four years later. I mean, uh, Ahad got convicted, caught, house arrested, everything for slapping an Israeli soldier who just shot her cousin in the head in her own front yard with by illegal Israeli occupation soldiers. On a good note, Yusuf is going to talk to us now about Ibrahim Nasrallah, who's just won the Booker Prize, the Arab Novelist of the Year. Ibrahim Nasrallah has won the International Prize for Arabic Fiction with his novel titled The Second War of the Dog. Uh, Nasrallah is the author of four novels and volumes of poetry translated into English, including Zaman al-Khuyul al-Bayda, Time of the White Horses. Nasrallah was born in 1954 to Palestinian parents, uprooted from their homeland in 1948. He spent his childhood in Al-Wahdat, Palestinian refugee camp in Amman, Jordan, before moving to Saudi Arabia to work as a teacher. Nasrallah called the novel he wrote a warning of what we could become in the future, adding that he wrote it to provoke the reader, to worry the reader, to even sometimes make them breathless. The novel suggests if we continue on our current path, we will reach a future where we could become mostly annihilistic. Robert. Well, I think BDS is starting to gain some great momentum. We've had a few great wins. Two things. Number one, um, in the uh, a unanimous vote in the city council on the 16th of April in Durham in North Carolina, became the first city in the United States to ban training programs between its police department and Israel's. Fantastic. So, Fantastic. so no longer will um, the... Um, Another victory. Yeah, the, the police there get sent to Israel for militarised police training. And, you know, we know how that ends up... Uh, Demoralised, I would say. They get their morals taken away from them. They go back. But it's telling us uh, how Israel is benefiting from occupation and how they keep uh, uh, trying new weapons and new techniques to manage crowds under occupation. So it has become, you know, uh, one of the most famous uh, export industries. Well, in fact, they market it. They market 
their training as you know field tested. Yeah, yeah. Because we're, we're you know we're the, and we the are rabbits. the guinea pigs. We're the guinea pigs. Yeah. So another victory also in um, a U.S. college campus this time at Barnard College in New York, where two thirds uh, voted in favor of a referendum supporting uh, BDS and the divestment of companies uh, profiting from Israeli human rights violations. This is a women's college with a very, very large Jewish uh, population. So um, this this feeds nicely into our dear friend Natalie Portman, who is um, having a crisis of her Zionism. And she, in fact, said that she wasn't going to accept a $2 million Genesis Prize in the State of Israel. And well, I think she deserves... Uh, well, uh, in fact, look, it was going to be $1 million and uh, they upped it for two for her. And right. she still said no, which um, is great. I, I, yes, if you clapped, but I, I, I would barely give her... Um, Butterfly claps. I mean, this is a woman who, you know, is still a devout Zionist. She has not mentioned that the reason she's not going is because of what's happening in Gaza or, or the, the, the African refugees that are going to get deported or the ongoing occupation or the denial of Palestinians' right to return mm. or the dehumanizing and apartheid policies inside 48. She's just saying for reasons. And I'm, I'm still a supporter of, mm. of, of guess- Israel and the dream of the uh, Jewish people to live in this country. She's but an I, apologist. I, I think I think to see a shift within the Jewish Jewry, especially in the United oh, States, no we have to move. Yeah, yeah. We have to acknowledge we the, the move. small yeah. gestures, even if it's gradual and slow. Yep. Look, there's no question. It's a it's a welcome thing. What is also very welcome, aside from the fact that she, you know, a person of authority, and because unfortunately the populace today doesn't take its leadership from intellectuals, it takes its leadership from people with. Uh, with Instagram, uh, yeah. high Instagram followers, you know, Kim, on yeah, stage, on Kim Kardashian and the like. Yeah. Um, the reality of somebody of her stature could say, I'm not going to accept this award, and it's $2 million. And we should make, make, make a mention that the guy who was presenting the $2 million said, all right, you can't have it, you should lose your citizenship, and I'm going to give the $2 million to the army. So wow. <laughs> nobody should accept the Genesis uh, Prize. Wow. But um, she... It's a big step for her. And what she's actually, the vitriol that she's been exposed to is 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 Zionism in its purest sense, which is just hate-filled. There have been calls for everything for her. You know, she's a self-hating Jew. She, you know, is a supporter of Hitler. She's trying to um, get uh, Israel uh, to, to, to be ended. I mean, the sort of stuff she has, is getting thrown at her, Incredible. we've seen before, but, you know, she's one of the one of the people on the inside. And now for somebody on the inside like her to see that, the, the, and this, she's being soft. And she's being she hasn't very actually soft. said anything really no, 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 bad. She's being you know? very, very soft. I mean, she only got butterfly but clapped but, from but me. But nevertheless, <laughs> she declined the prize. And and for that, people who have been questioning, you know, young people, isn't the older people? Isn't no, people, yeah, isn't it's the younger generation. It's, it's the kids going, you know, I don't really see my Judaism attached to this foreign country. I'm an American. And I'm, I'm an English, a British person. I'm an Australian. What what are you doing to Natalie Portman just because she doesn't want this prize because she doesn't like Netanyahu and she doesn't agree with what's happening to the refugees? And, I don't agree with that and either. And for this, one of the Israeli theorists uh, put the shift in Israeli and Jewish Jewry as a strategic threat to the state of Israel. And so moving, moving along, we've got Deputy Knesset Speaker Bezalel Smotrich, who, who sent out a tweet about Ahad Tamimi, you know, for slapping a soldier. We spoke about it a, mom, a moment ago. In my opinion, she should have gotten a bullet, at least in the kneecap, that would have put her under house arrest for the rest of her life. Now, she and this is directed to a teenager. To a teenager, he's the deputy Knesset speaker. And we should remember that the deputy Knesset speaker is like our deputy uh, speaker of the house, second in charge of the House of Representatives or the House of the Knesset. So, a very, very, very high position. You know, prime minister, 
speaker, speaker of the House, Deputy Speaker of the House. Now, this guy lost his Twitter for 12 hours. For 12 hours and asked to remove. Whereas I, I which, actually, which, I had my which, YouTube channel. Which also, which makes me wonder, our friend, you know, Robert, uh, what happened to your YouTube channel? So I, overnight, over the weekend, had a, uh, tried to get into my YouTube um, and I couldn't get into it. And then I had a, an email from YouTube to say that uh, it had actually been terminated. So no, no warnings, but in fact terminated. So the, you know, the hundreds of videos I had on there, and the videos are just showing what's going on. Also, a lot of my videos where I was interviewing people. Like I've, I've watched all of those. most of your videos, and there is no hate, uh, there's no vilification. There's, you were just highlighting the, um, the Palestinian struggle under occupation. That and that was enough for YouTube. Which is outrageous. Obviously, yeah. free speech means free from any uh, criticisms of Israel, free from any of that sort of stuff. But, I mean, to me, it's bombastic. Horrific. I sent emails and I'm told that I cannot have a YouTube channel ever again. No, sir, in 90 seconds. Okay. Hanin Zabi, she, you know, anybody who's a friend of Palestine would know who she is. She's a Palestinian member of the Knesset. A Sue Fishkoff of Jay Weekly decided to interview her while Hanin was in, um, in, in America. And this is Hanin. I'm willing to meet with and talk with anyone, but they should know what they're going to hear from me, she added. Anyone who's not an anti-Zionist who perceives himself or herself as a left-wing Zionist must recognize their complicity in the tragedy of the Palestinians. You are either That's a Zionist and realize the colonial dimension of Israel as a Jewish state, or you have to take responsibility for the oppression of the Palestinians. Because Israel defines itself as a Jewish state, it cannot be my state. And if it doesn't describe itself as my state, then I have no sense of belonging to it. In a democracy, the state should serve its citizens. If the state oppresses its citizens and then asks for loyalty, then maybe it's a fascist state. Of course, the Zionists may call me anti-Semitic, but I'm just a mirror. If my discourse is extremist, it's because the reality is so extreme. You, don't, you didn't come to live with me. You came to replace me. Nothing justifies the Zionist enterprise, she says. I identify with the victims of the Holocaust. I consider it the worst tragedy in 100 years, but I had nothing to do with it. So why must I pay? Now, at the end of those truthful words, our, our Sue had nothing to say, but she wrote close to column with, for someone who believes in the power of compassionate listening, as I do, this conversation was shattering. I acknowledged her pain, and she did not acknowledge mine. Well, Sue, oh. I'm very sorry that you were very hurt by Hanin's words, but the truth does hurt. With this, we've come to the end of this week's episode of Palestine. Remember, Robert and Nasser, thank you. Thanks, Yusuf. Thank you. Until we meet next Saturday, same time, 9.30 in the morning, have a great time and salam. <laughs>